Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's Sunday afternoon. And uh, I was debating with myself whether to do this, and if I do it, how to classify it, um, because this is really something I plan to do at my house on Purim, or at least as part of a Varta. What I do every year is I uh, try to finish the Gemara McGill, which I've done, and uh, put together what they call a Zaini Varta, which goes over many pages, and uh, I always look for a different angle, and... Uh, I'm afraid some people who are going to be there are going to listen to this, but all right, I'll do it anyway uh, to get it out there. Uh, especially, and I'm going to classify this as tefillah. So I want to thank Mishpacha Stefanski, as you'll see in a second, even though it's an angle on the history of tefillah that's my own. Uh, for those of you in the Baltimore area, I always, I mean, uh, whoever's listening to this is in the Baltimore area, is certainly invited. We always make a masiba at my house at Dab Mincha if one forty five. That's the one time a year I have open house. Uh and followed by the Masiba and the Dvar Torah uh at my home. So uh of course you're invited invited, but anyway I'm gonna proceed with, with what I'm uh, about to tell you. I was working on a Dvar Torah a long one for uh, Purim, and I'll cut right to the chase for the purposes of this. So once again I want to thank Mishpacha Stefanski they do every for the Tefillah podcast. I'd rather do this now than wait till after Purim's over, and then it'll be a, a, a waste. So let me get right to it. The story, of course, um, we know, but I want to focus on one or two points, and that is that when push comes to shove, when they find out that the decree has been issued by Haman, as everybody knows the story, so Mordechai and Esther freak out, and what does Queen Esther say? She tells Mordechai, Lech Knosis call Yehudim, Batumo Lai, Baltoch, Batish, Slash, as you mean, Gaman, even now, Sayosim came, became Avolamach, Shogaz, Kachar, Vadati, Avadati. That's basically the plan. So Queen Esther says to Mordechai, as I think we know the story, Lech Knosis call Yehudim, go and gather the Jews, which the Gemara says he had to cross a river to go gather the Jews together and lead a prayer session and a fasting session. This was. The, the decree was issued um, the day before Arab Pesach, in other words, the day of the Benikas Hametz. And then they say you should fast for three days. That would be Arab Pesach, excuse me, then the first day of Pesach and the second day of Pesach. That's how they say the story is. So they look at Rashi and, and the Gemara and all that. Uh, so they're going to fast on the Arab Pesach, Pesach, and the second day of Pesach. You and I know the story, but on the second day of Pesach, which in Israel would be the first day of Chalmoy, but they were in Chutzar, so the second day of Pesach, uh, that's when Haman was killed. Okay? Uh, check it out. So, uh, that's amazing. What happened? She says, go cross the river and, and, and assemble the Jews. Many Mepharshim, especially Abishitz and others, have always made the point that Mordechai did not live with the Jewish community. Uh, he lived with a loner. Mordechai Yehudi, the matter says Mordechai HaYechidi, for whatever reason, he didn't live in Shushan, but he lived in Shushan, a bureau. As many have pointed out, and now modern archaeology 
you know, demonstrates this. You can get the Landy book. I think Feldheim put it out. You can see diagrams if that's what turns you on. And the way it used to work in Shushan was that there's the city of Shushan on the one hand, and then there's a river or a moat. And then there's the imperial city where the emperor, where the king lives, with his harem and his government officers and all that business. Like you have in Peking, you know, in Beijing with the Forbidden City and all that. Very common in Oriental countries that there's a separate compound for the royals. Um, the Jewish community wasn't there. And Mordecai, therefore, was pretty much by himself. Uh, Golomiasmo is not only in the sense that, you know, originally he exiled himself to, uh, to uh, Bavel. Of course, now you're in Shushan. Uh, as the Gemara indicates, but Golomiatsu, I think, means he was that kind of a person. Why? There's a reason behind it, but I'm saving that for Purim. Now, um, so he lived by himself. <clears throat> Remember, there was no, you could, at the time I'm talking about, there was no such thing as Tefillah B'Tzibur. And so, it's possible, at that time, for somebody to live away from a Jewish community. Today, you wouldn't imagine a from person could live not within walking distance of a shoal if you can afford avoid it. If it's possible to have a situation where you live in a Jewish neighborhood and you live near a shoal, where are you going to go to Davin? Who would live if they have a, cho- a ch- choice in a place where there's no other uh, you know minion? But at that time, there was no such thing as Philip Zibor. And uh, therefore, Mordecai, if he wished to, could live by himself. And he lived across the river and had nothing to do with the others. Now... Then, of course, rises the story of Haman and the issuing of the decree on the day, as they say, of the of the Bedigas Chometz. And Mordechai finds out, and he tells Esther, as we all know the story, and her response is, gather the Jews and lead a, a fasting and a prayer session to help me in my efforts, and then I will go to see the king, Kasher Vadati Avadati. I'll do my best. So Mordechai did it. And so he did something that really was never done, which is they had a public tefillah b'tzibur. Look throughout the Bible and tell me how many times you see that the Jewish people got together for a minion, let's say, to use modern parlance, even though it was not at that time. I mean, I can only think of a very small number of cases where in a certain circumstance, usually an emergency, there's a public prayer gathering. Isn't that interesting I'm saying? The Rambam famously says, I've mentioned many times, beginning Hilchus Tefillah, that once upon a time there was a mitzvah to Davim, but it's like the Quakers, you do whatever you want. Ain minion a mitzvah tefillah, ain matbeya shal tefillah min Just vavadat Hashem, just talk to God. Say some praise things, say some bakoshas, praise things, and you're done. And some were myrich, some were makatzer. In other words, it was the antithesis of tefillah, but Sibur, it was highly solicistic. It was a personal person, thing like that. This guy's davening for a shidduch because that's what he needs. This girl's davening for a shidduch, that's what she needs. The other guy needs a parnosa. Nowadays, the guy says, I need a, you know, to pay for the higher price of gas. Whatever it was, at least it, there was no rote prayer. There was no shimon asrei. Nothing like that. Imagine before David and Melch, there was no tillum. So that takes away 90% of your davening. And uh, people just talked off the top of their head. That's how the Rambam famously describes the situation um, before they created the Tefillah B'Tzibur that you and I are familiar with. And the story of Queen Esther takes place during that time, before the Tefillah B'Tzibur was created. Now, um, immediately before that. So, look throughout the Tanakh, 
and tell me when you had a public prayer session, as opposed to people simply on their own davening. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I can think in the book of Samuel, there's a certain time when Shmuel gathers everybody together to pray for the Plishtim, and it's successful. That's one. <laughs> See what I'm saying? Uh, off the top of my head, I remember Yehoshaphat had a kind of a uh, a session in Divrayamam over there when they were attacked by three or four armies. Uh, he got everybody together for a dominating session, which proved to be very successful. Uh, maybe Chizkiah, I don't think so. You know, see what I'm doing? You're, you're picking here and there. Usually you don't have... Now, you had, you had a base of Migdash. You have what we call a cult in the sociological sense of the word uh, that, you know, there's a religion with a, with a temple and a sacrifice and all that. That's where the public stuff was done. But as far as Kenosis call Yehudim as far as a public prayer session, I don't think you see it. And therefore, what Queen Esther was saying was rather novel. But since she was facing a crisis, uh, so she's taking her life in her hands. She was freaked out, properly so. Uh, properly so. So she's saying, I need to help a Klai Yisrael. That's understandable. And so he tells Mordechai, you have to give up the loner business. Mordechai says, and he had to do, cross the water, meaning do something which was out of character. And of course he did do it. And he gathered the Jews together. Now, it doesn't say in the Megillah these words, but it's understood that that's what he did. And therefore he had a three-day davening session of fasting. Mind you, not you fast and eat in the evening like Ramadan. A 72-hour fast. That's what it says. So it's a 72-hour fast. On the other hand, you're facing a Holocaust because they found out what the king was 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 um, uh, you know ordering, and that there's going to be a general massacre of all the Jews. So moms were facing a Hitler. So that focuses the mind, as the Chazal say, Gedol Hasar Satabas. They scared the heck out of them, understandably, and consequently they davened their head off. So you had two things happening. A very serious prayer, because everybody was personally affected, but also a prayer at Sibor. Okay? There's a Kaikha at Sibor. So Queen Esther, I don't know if she, uh, it's not possible to tell, but it sounds like she understood there's a Kaikha at Sibor at Sibor per se. Why the Jewish people never bothered? To make a tefillah but Sibur in earlier centuries is never clear. The Rambam doesn't quite deal with that in his way. The Rambam has like a weird interpretation, which I want to get to in a second, but he doesn't, in which he ascribes to historical circumstances of a crazy nature, but he doesn't address the question, which is the Klai Yisrael had all kind of trouble in by his recent period. Why did they create a tefillah of Sibur? So you have the Koch of the Sibur, you know, which we place such great emphasis on in Judaism. But she did. And the result was it was amazingly successful. Because as we all know, they davened their heads off and fasted on Arab Pesach, and they continue to do so in Pesach. Just consider that. And they continue to do so on the second day of Pesach, during which time, in other words, more or less, at the culmination of all this, Haman was killed. So Mamash, what happened? Haman was killed. Now, that meant that they had a happy ending. The question that becomes, and this is how I understand it, I can only tell you, as I always say a hundred times, my interpretation <laughs> this year. 
So you had three thing, two things that happened, and an amazing result at the end. You had Queen Esther fasting and praying and all this stuff, and then self-sacrificing, because you know she went and she invited Haman to the meal, and she uh, you know and she was ready to to uh, what do you call it, give up her life. It says, Osborne little punim kadeshi arguvahi. The Gemara says she was willing if if push came to shove. She'd make out with him. The king would freak out and kill them both. And she, I'll take this guy down with me, like Shimshin. So she was a hero. So you can say her personal, what's the right word? Self-sacrifice. And remember, for five years, she was stuck with that guy before Haman showed up. with So for five years, she put up all this junk. You can say her heroism and her self-sacrifice and her tzitkas, et cetera, et cetera, you know, won the day. Okay. You could attribute the downfall of Haman to her efforts. Me'idachisa, you could say, no. The fact that you got a tefillah b'tzibur, in other words, the efforts of Mordechai, the davening, the fasting, with, which was with the kavana and bechia, and, you know, they were, like I said before, they were They were scared out of their minds, so they davened their heads off. That's what Tudof, the end of Haman. So when the story was over, and you had a happy ending, and they want to commemorate it to whatever degree they want to commemorate it, as I would understand it, the question would be like this. What was the cause? Get it? What was the cause of the victory and the triumph of the Jews? What was the cause? And I, as, as I see it, this year, there are two schools of thought, A and B. One is the Queen Esther school, which says she did it. And she certainly... Like I said before, she you know she certainly did her efforts, no question about that. But there was a second school of thought which says it was the Tefillas that did it. You get it? The Kenosis call Yehudim. So the question: What was the Iker, A or B? The Megillus Esther was written by Queen Esther and Mordechai, precisely to give their version of the story that the Prime Messi was A, the Team Esther version, because the whole story is putting the emphasis, of course, on the efforts of Queen Esther and how she took Haman down and, all, you know, with the banquet and all the rest of it and then brought Mordechai out of obscurity and, and rose to power and, and all the rest of it. True, the davening is mentioned, but very little. She said, Lech Knosis called Yehudim and so forth, but it doesn't say, all it says is Sakva for Yitzhabarabim. You know what I mean? Notice, it, it doesn't tell you much description about what the Jews in Shushan proper did. It rather emphasizes the Esther part. It doesn't deny or, you know, hide the fact that there was a Tzakve for Yitzhabarabim, that there was a big tefillah, but the main emphasis is on the Esther account. Lee Beimerly, that the Chacham didn't like that. We know that they were reluctant to include the Book of Esther in there. Uh, that's very famous. The Gemara says that they say because of uh, anti-Semitism, or maybe there were other calculations, you know, shilashim below rebeim and all this kind of business. But they didn't want to do it. She forced them. That, that's the bottom line. She pushed on them. She forced them. Uh, depending, you know, the Rishalmi says, you know, the God sided with Queen Esther. And so the result was that this holiday of Purim emerged as an Esther day. Again, the Kenosis call Yehudim and the Tefillah was important, no question about that. But it's certainly not foreground, it's not emphasized in the narrative. Uh, her heroism is is emphasized in the narrative. 
and no one has a problem with that. In my personal opinion, I think the Chazal were uncomfortable with that for a number of reasons, especially the reason being that the, the story of Queen Esther involves something unsavory, that she, you know, she was sleeping with a Gaisha king. Now, she had reasons as Karka Olam, and then Kasher Avadati and, you know, and Mordechai told her to do this. You know, there's no question. In other words, in Ad Aksha Ba'onis Aksha she had to come on to the king, wasn't Karkolam anymore. All this can be certainly defended in a shear, in a yeshiva. You know, um, we can explain it, but at the end of the day, it, it doesn't, it, you know, it, 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 it didn't taste good to the rabbis. That's my opinion. You see this point, for example, in the Maharik, uh, the famous Maharik who says that, you know, Esther did, this is what he says. He says, you know, Queen Esther did a good thing, but she had to get divorced from Mordecai. You might ask, why would you have to do that? After all, she was following the instructions of the Sanhedrin to go and come on to the king, seduce the king. So she was, as we would say today, she found Das Torah, you know? So why should, so it wasn't like she's being Mizana. She's not committing adultery, you know, having an affair with the king. She had no choice. Literally, you know, she had no choice. And the Marik said, I guess, that's true, but still, it's Mola Mola Ishta, whatever the expression is. Or Mola Bisha, again, from Soto. There was a Mela, it was wrong. So, this is something we don't emphasize too much unless, you know, in the, you're into the Lumpish side and all that. But, you know, the Queen Esther's a funny heroine. Uh, she stuck with the king. It's not her choice, but she stuck with the king. And she remained stuck with the king. So, she was involved in, shall I say, Gila Rice. I mean, that's not the right word to use for her, but the Gemara discussed this, you know. Uh, and that's a, a funny heroine. I think that they preferred... The narrative that says it was that Tefillah B'tzibur that did it. Because the Koch of Tefillah B'tzibur is unbelievable if people mean it, and if it's really Achtus. You know, this is a, a potential power we have all the time, which we don't really use. When we get together these public Tillam rallies, that's good if people are really in it, but, you know, if you're not really in it, then they have the same power, but Tefillah B'tzibur is like an amazing sort of thing. This is a fundamental Jewish belief. You will remember that the Gemara says, I'm off the top of my head, that the Aseris Mechuva is like very important. Is you know at that time the the, the, the gates of heaven are open, but at Tefillah B'tzibur it doesn't need Aseris Mechuva. A Tzibur can do any time of the year, you see. So it's a tremendous power, but the Jewish people never had Tefillah B'tzibur, <laughs> right? The, the, it never was at the time. We're talking about the concept of public davening. Shemon Esrei didn't exist. So I think. Um, that it's not coincidental that immediately after the Purim story, we find that they invent Tefillah B'tzibur. Because, according to the Rambam, certainly, and I think the others as well, what is the historical, according to the Rishon, what is the historical origins of the practice you and I have today of davening in public with a minion in a shul? It's Anshigen Segdola. Excuse me? Yes, sir, Anshigen Segdola. Excuse me, who's that? It's Mordechai, it's especially Ezra and Nehemiah and those guys over there. Meaning, it's one of the events that takes place immediately following the Purim story. When I say immediately, I don't mean the day after, but you know, in that Kufa, the actors who 
created and invented the concept of Tefillah B'Tzibur included the characters of Purim and the rabbis who debated with Esther against her. The Ezra types and all the rest of it. Now, is it coincidental that after the Purim story, the rabbis create something called Tefillah B'Tzibur? I don't think so. I leave you umberly that this is their way of putting out the other side. Queen Esther was able. She earned it. She had power. She was the queen. She had good arguments. Uh, she even had divine uh, help, according to the Yushalmi. It says, So she triumphed in getting her version out there that it was her actions that accomplished the saving of Kali Yisrael and all the rest of it. She didn't deny that there was a Tefillah Tzibor, but as I said before, it's not emphasized. The rabbis, if I can use that expression, what you and I call Anshik Zegdola, which includes Mordechai, you know, at least I wasn't there, but, you know, you assume. Uh, I think they got back at her, and I don't mean that in a bad way, but they wanted to uh, foreground their, uh, what shall I say, their narrative, and uh, they said like this, he says, what really saved the Klaus Rov, the Tefillah B'Tzibur, the three days of the Tzum Alai Val Tochel Val Tishlu Shlosh Yom Laila V'Yom. That's what did it. Because they davened away, and by the time it was over, Hama was gone. Of course, Esther was the actual physical, I forget how Aristotle called it, the proximate cause, or one of those terms, you know. But the real cause was not Esther, but it was the Tefillah B'Tzibur. And since we see, and by the way, if that's true, then you can already see Kim of a Because people say, guess, wow, <laughs> wow, we dobbing our heads off, and look what happened. We Look at the power we have in us. Uh, wow. And that could be part of the Kim of a I think. Um, you know what I mean? When they saw it, it actually works. And, you know, you see God responds to, to when the B'nai Israel, you know, really put their put their minds to it and feel it, which is a principle of Judaism. It's a, one of the fundamental principles of Judaism, I might add. And so you have therefore two, if I'm right, you have two results from the Purim story. And each one represents two different teams and two different versions of what was the real cause of the Purim miracle. You have something called Megillus Esther, and that's the Esther narrative. That's one way. And then you have the creation of Shemun Esrei. You have the creation of Tefillah B'Tzibur, because they say this, we just tuduf, we just created an unbelievable miracle, v'nahapachu, that uh, the Jews had a triumph, an unbelievable triumph. You know, they killed that Amalek. Uh, I, I mean, you know the whole story, obviously. Uh, this unbelievable triumph because of the three days of davening from a whole tzibur. Because Knos is Kali You get a whole tzibur, and it wasn't a whole empire, obviously, it was just a city, but nevertheless, a tzibur that lives in a whole city, if it's everybody, that means, by the way, that they got all the Jews, you know, like the Ketores. Believe me, there were plenty of Jews in, in Shushan, had to be, that weren't from, that were involved in this and that and the other. They were idiots. They were prostitutes. Every, you know, the whole business, that's how Jewish communities always are. But everybody got together, and it's like, It must have been quite a scene over there, because they were all in the same boat, a community of faith. They were all fa- going to be killed because they were Jewish. Uh, Hashem likes that. <laughs> That's a principle of Judaism, like the Messiah of Sharm that I mentioned many times. 
you know, like the Ketoris. And if you get everybody together like that, it has a tremendous power. And in order to uh, capitalize on this, they said, well, let's let's make this a permanent part of Judaism. A perm- I repeat, a permanent part of Judaism. And uh, and that, there's there's your creation of Tefillah B'Tzibor. Now the Rambam says, uh, you know, this because at the time of Ezra, you know, that you started to have children of uh, kind of mixed marriages or, you know, the mothers, let's put it this way, converted, but it was kacha kacha, and the children couldn't speak Hebrew anymore. That's the, the, the and and uh, they were inarticulate, and people stopped praying. Uh, I'm look, the Rambam is the Rambam. I get it. Kim Shigol So he talks about Persia. And he says the children grow up in mixed marriages and they couldn't speak a language. And therefore, it was like the refugees used to come here after the Second World War. They couldn't speak. Uh, uh, um, uh, they weren't articulate in any single language. They mixed. They spoke a jargon, a mixture of different languages, and that prevents you from being able to express yourself. Uh, it's a, I mean, look, it's a Rambam, so, you know, I, I acknowledge that. It's a funny way of reading the Pusik. It's not really what the Pusik seems to mean to the average person, you know, when, when you generally read it. And the whole thing is a little bit weird because you're telling them it's a matter of aesthetics. They couldn't speak Hebrew well. And this only applied to the Jews in uh, Eretz Yisrael, uh, not in Chutzlars, but, you know, look, maybe I'm wrong. I'm, you know, the Rambam knows more than me. But I can only tell you, it's, it, everybody asks the question, where do you get this from? Where does the Rambam, has no Makor for this. So something he seems to have gotten on his own, unless there's some Medrash that we don't know about. Sometimes you have Rambams like that. They have some source that we haven't discovered. As far as I'm aware, this is something he made up. Meaning, looking at the past, this is how he put it together. I am suggesting, because it's the week of Purim, a different scenario. And it's the one that I just laid out for you. And it's a result, a reaction to the Purim miracle, which must have been a gigantic event in the period that you and I call the Anche Esegdola. Because these guys lived in Eretz Yisrael. They included, according to tradition, Mordechai. They definitely include Ezra, Chemia, and those types of people. And, you know, how could the story of the near Holocaust that was averted by a series of events which included public prayer, and after that they institutionalized public prayer, how could those two things just be coincidental? I think it's got to be, in this particular case, even though we usually regard it as a logical fallacy, to me, post hoc ergo propter hoc. If it happened afterwards, I think it was a result of that. And so, if what I'm saying is true, then the story of Purim is a major event in the history of public prayer and liturgical prayer in a rote form, meaning in 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 the form of a, of a of a fixed text, and is therefore a major uh, uh, event in Jewish history. So Purim has a thousand faces. Obviously, I'm suggesting one of them, and if I'm right, and I think I am, otherwise I wouldn't say it. Then you and I, you know, let's put it this way: we fit, we have Purim every day. Because we have davening and brachos uh, all the time. And so instead of Purim being a one-day holiday, remember the Queen Esther story, that's a one-day a year, you have the other effect 
which is every day of the year. You understand? Maybe, 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 this might be why they say that Purim will never go away. Meaning, it's not, you know, the the Rambam, I think you know this, the Rambam famously says, he quotes from the Yerushalmi, really, that, uh, you know, Purim is a permanent holiday, Zichon lo Yosef Mizarum, and all that kind of language, right? And uh, it's funny that the Rambam, I, I won't say it's funny, but it's interesting that the Rambam takes the trouble to quote that particular Agadita, okay? And, uh, you know, he makes a point of it in Hilchus, I'm flipping around to find it in my, um, you know, here it is, Hilchus Megillah, in my, um, what do you call it? Uh, Mishnah Torah over here. And, uh, right, the, and the Ram, this is the end. You know, it goes, the Rama has something called Hilchus Megillah with Hanukkah. And it, it's two chapters about the Megillah and three about Hanukkah. And at the end of the, uh, in, in Perik Beis, Simon Yerches, at the end of the laws of Purim, he says, Kol Sifri Anavim Bechol Ksubim Asidim Lebatel Mimosa Mashiach Chutzmi Megillah Sester. The Megillah Sester, we go on, Hari Kayem Zechamisha Chum Shetorah Emtein Liolam. Maybe it's because, I'm not sure that the Loshan and the Rishalmi is like the way the Ramah says it, but maybe it's because uh, Purim generated not only Kimba Kibble, but Tefila Betzibor. Anyway, that was my idea. Once again, I uh, wanted to get this going because it would be silly to deal with something Tefila Dick at the end of the week after Purim is over, but rather I want to throw it out there for people to consider as the days approach for the holiday of Purim. So once again, I want to thank, as we always do, Mishpacha Stefanski for always sponsoring the um, Tefila the podcast. And with that, I wish you a good week um, and happy Purim. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.